Now, as we move into our teaching time, we're moving into the very final, final sermon in the Book of Judges series that we've been in since the beginning of the year. And that's something for us to celebrate, yeah? Yeah, Yeah, celebrate now because it's going to get dark here in a minute. Um, But before we do that, we're going to have our scripture reading, of course, and Vicki's going to come and lead us in that, and she's going to be reading for us from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from his iniquities. Amen. Thanks, Vicki. Good morning, Sound City. It is great to see you. And excited to, well, maybe excited is the wrong word, but uh, looking forward to finishing this last section of the book of Judges. We've been going through the book of Judges since the beginning of the year. And uh, a lot of challenging, a lot of difficult stories, and this one, probably the most challenging, the most difficult. Um, I will also say, just uh, by way of kind of an introduction and, 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 I guess, warning, for lack of a better word, um, today's sermon will deal with uh, some subjects, some material of a sexual type of nature. And so if you're a parent, I can't see with the lights very well, if you're a parent who has a kid here with you, uh, just be aware that we're going to talk about those things. By God's grace, never graphically or gratuitously or anything. But uh, if you're going to have your kids being here, just know you as a parent have, a, I think, a God-given responsibility to have some uh, awkward conversations this afternoon. And uh, I just want you to be forewarned for that. Otherwise, uh, our children's ministry would maybe be a, a good spot for them for today. But let's do this. Before we do anything else, let's pray and let's ask God to work in us. And so I'm just going to invite you, if you would, just even as we pray, take a couple of deep breaths, lower your guard down. Let's, uh, let's look kind of into one of the darker stories, maybe in the entirety of Scripture, and let's see how God wants to use it in our lives to shape us today. Let's pray. God, I just ask and I invite you right now to send your Holy Spirit in a Uh, just a unique way, a tangible way, a present way, Lord God, that we we would see how you are faithful to your people even when we are unfaithful. And so God, I ask and pray that you would let us, whether it's in our own lives or the lives of those close to us, you'd let us look into some of the most broken aspects of what it means to be human and we would have your light and your heat and your warmth shine in Bring redemption. Let us see your redemption in this story. As dark as it is, let us know your redeeming power in our lives individually. Guard my lips. Help me to only teach what is in line with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So we've been on kind of this long, twisting, meandering journey. When I look back and think back over the entirety of the book of Judges, uh, you start out, the first story really is Israel's half-hearted and partial obedience, where they don't really trust God and obey him fully, and it leads to all sorts of negative consequences. 
I think about the way that the story talks about the second generation and the way they kind of just assumed God's blessing and God's uh, providence in their lives, even though like their parents followed God and then they, they kind of sort of did. They, they didn't realize that God was calling them to follow him as well. We looked at some unique cats, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Uh, one of them was even left-handed and God still used him. It was amazing. Um, we talked about Deborah and Jael, some amazing women who had a lot of courage to follow God despite uh, a lot of opposition. Think of Deborah in particular as, as the only woman judge and really as the only character, maybe other than Othniel in the book of Judges, that the author has nothing negative to say about. Deborah is like an exemplary uh, character. We talked about Gideon, the one who a lot of us, you know, maybe grew up thinking of as this great hero of the faith, but noticing the way his faith was really mixed with fear and how tragically at the end of his life it led to a really uh, severe downturn. We talked about Abimelech, his son, and just the, his lust for power and the nature of power and the nature of authority and how so much of that gets really mixed up in our sinful hearts. We talked about some kind of no-name people. Some people who lived, they died, they judged Israel. Some of them rode donkeys, we will remember that. Uh, but how most of us, we're never going to have our names written in the history books, and yet if our name is written in the book of life, that's what really matters. We talked about a man named Jephthah who, despite maybe some good intentions, his spiritual ignorance led to disastrous results. We talked about Samson, and I uh, actually had someone just this morning tell me, man, I, I realized Samson was kind of not a good guy, but just did not realize just how much of a scoundrel he was and how much of really an addict that he was to his own sin and to his own pride. And then last week we talked about Micah and the Levite and Dan, the tribe of Dan and how they're all so selfish and self-focused. And can you guys uh, agree with me that throughout the book of Judges, we've seen some some bad characters, right? We've seen some people acting in a, a bad way, doing some selfish things, doing some unhealthy things, doing some prideful and sinful things. One Bible commentator, James Hamilton, says about these chapters we're about to read, all of the bad things the leaders did is matched or superseded by this one story. Yeah, so... Um, I like to deliver sermons like this and then leave town for a few weeks and go on vacation so that I, I uh, as, you know, Pastor Shane has to clean it all up for me. So sorry about that, brother. Here's the big idea, though, and I, I'm going to say this from the outset. I want to set this up. I want to convince you of this, and I pray that it ministers to your heart. Here's the big idea. No mess created by the choices of sinful people is beyond the redemption that's available in Jesus. Our grace, our, our, sorry, our sin... Our messiness, our brokenness may be huge, but God's faithfulness and God's grace is bigger. I want to show you that in this story. This story is long. We've got a lot to go through. I don't know, maybe you've never been in a church service where we've covered three uninterrupted chapters of Scripture, but that's my hope and my aim today. We're going to see that each one of these chapters is kind of an act in one long, tragic story. So in chapter 19, which is kind of act one, we're going to see this really terrible crime that takes place. Chapter 20 is the second act. It leads to a really terrible war. And then Act 3, chapter 21, the concluding chapter of the book of Judges, is a really terrible response to the war, which was a response to the crime. It's this uh, const continual story um, that really is not a lot redemptive within the story itself, but I want to show you the work of God in it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and power them on. Uh, we'll be in Acts, or in Acts, uh, Judges 19, starting with the Act 1, the first part. In those days, when there, what is it, Sound City? 
There was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. It's more up north. And he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, further from the south. So, by the way, I'll remind you, the Levites, that's the tribe of Israel. That's the group of people that was supposed to lead worship of God. And so here we meet another Levite. We actually had a Levite last week. We have another Levite this week who has taken to himself a concubine. And a concubine is in this part of the world, in this time in human history, a concubine is something less than a wife, but something more than a mistress. It's kind of like a a wife or somebody that you don't have to be embarrassed to have with you, but they don't really have any legal rights. It's actually tragic when you think about the way that the culture, you know, around the people of Israel would take multiple wives, would take concubines. Here's a man who is supposed to be teaching the people the word of God. He's a Levite. He's supposed to be leading worship of God and study of the, the, well, what they would have had at that time, the first five books of the Bible. And yet here he is with a concubine. It's pretty tragic. Verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. The word in the Hebrew is zana. It means immorality or, or harlotry. It's unfaithfulness in that way. And instead of going back to her husband, she ran home and went to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And she stayed there uh, uh, for some four months. Now, her husband arose after four months. I don't know why he delayed so long, but he arose, went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Okay, seems like maybe he's an okay guy. But maybe not. Maybe he just wants his property back. You can be the judge a little later as the story goes. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him in to her father's house. Now when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. The father's overjoyed. Maybe he's happy to see reconciliation take place. Maybe he just wants to get his daughter back out of the house again. Uh, Maybe he is scared for how the Levite might treat his daughter and he wants to be hospitable. The story is pretty open-ended. There's a lot of uh, uh, vagueness in this story. Verse 4, his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him for three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there, and on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, no, 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 strengthen your heart with some bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them ate and sat, and they drank together, and the girl's father said to the men, "Well, well, now you ought to just spend the night. And let your heart be merry. And what is that code for uh, in the Bible? Have some more wine. Let's open up another bottle. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. And so they both ate. And when the man and his concubine and servant rose up again to depart, the father-in-law, the the girl's father said, wait, 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 hold on. It's, It's getting late now. The day has waned toward evening. Uh, please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning uh, for your journey and go home. This is like the sixth day, by the way. It's common in this part of the world, in the ancient Near East, to have a uh, really welcoming sort of hospitality. Actually, even in, in, the, in the Near Eastern world, the Middle East, or in parts of uh, Africa, Kyle and I just experienced this in April when we were in Uganda. We we're walking around, people just invite you into their homes. One, and they would give you gifts. I actually felt even uh, guilty sometimes because I'm the, you know, quote, rich American and these, these farmers or, or uh, you know, an, uh, more of a rural sort of society. And inviting me. One guy gave me an entire bag full of these oranges. And I'm like, I'm so thankful for your hospitality. I think that uh, customs will tase me if I try to take these back into the U.S., but I'm thankful for the hospitality. It's kind of like that in the part of the world. But this is like over the top 
hospitality. Three days, four days, five days. This is the sixth day. No, stay, stay, eat. What's going on there? Why won't the father let him go? What's going on? I, I honestly, we don't have a really clear answer, but there's something kind of interesting going on there. But the man would not spend the night. He's like, I'm done. I gotta go. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. So finally he says, we gotta go. Now, when they get near Jebus, the day was nearly over. It's getting late. And the servant said to his master, hey, uh, let's turn aside to the city of the Jebusites. Let's spend the night here. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into this city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We're going to pass on to Gibeah. We don't, we don't know how we're going to get treated in this town of non-Israelites. We need to stay with Israelites. We need hospitality. We need lodging. So he says, let's draw near to one of those places. Let's spend the night at Gibeah, or if we can really push it on Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Anybody ever had that kind of a road trip? Like, hey, let's see how far we can make it. Oh, we're out of gas. Looks like we're stopping here for the night, right? They turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. Now, he went in, and they sat in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, remember what I just said about the hospitality and the custom and to invite people in? So here they they skip this foreigner's town. They say, let's go spend the night in this Israelite town. Let's see who will be hospitable to us. No one takes them in. That is very rude, especially in the story, considering what we just saw. So they're just hanging out in the town square. Nobody's taking them in. Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. That's where the Levite's from. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. So he's not a, a, a person from Gibeah. He's not from the tribe of Benjamin, where the city is. He's a, he's a traveler as well, but he's the only one that's welcoming to them. The men of the place were Benjamite, Benjaminites, and he lifted up his eyes, saw the traveler, and said, hey, where are you going? Where do you come from? And the Levite says, well, we're you know, passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And that's where I'm from. I, I went to Bethlehem and Judah. And I'm trying to get to the house of the Lord, but no one's taken me in. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack for anything. He's like, we got food, we got supplies. I'm not, I don't, don't want to be a burden on you. We just need somewhere to sleep for the night. And so the old man said, well, peace be to you, shalom to you. I will care for all of your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. Anybody ever had that conversation? You go to a new city or a place you're not familiar with. I'm like, yeah, by the way, don't go to that part of town. It's exactly what's happening here. So we brought him into his house, gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and they ate and, they drank, and drank. Okay, so so far we're saying maybe... Maybe this old man, he's, maybe he's a good guy. He's being hospitable. We're going to see in a minute that he is incredibly morally compromised and confused. Verse 22. Story takes a very dark turn here. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the, the biblical word they're knowing, yes, it means in that sense. It means sexually. Bring him out. We, this group, intend to take advantage of him. 
And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look at that moral language he uses, wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Now, pause for just a minute here. If you're a good student of the scriptures, you've read the book of Genesis, what does this story call to mind for you? Sodom and Gomorrah. Only the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where a very, very similar uh, demand was made, those aren't the people of God. Those were the Canaanites. And here we have, they passed by the Canaanite city, went to an Israelite city. These are men of Gibeah, men from the tribe of Benjamin, wanting to commit essentially gang rape. If you were a Jew reading this story, no, 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 not our people, not, not the people of God, not the Israelites. No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing, very moral language, very righteous language. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Let me give you a two-for-one sort of a thing. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, literally what seems right in your eyes. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Isn't it interesting how sometimes a very immoral or morally confused person can have such a strong sense of morality? Happens in our day today as well. Very immoral things have very strong language of morality attached to it. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine. Which man is this? The Levite seized his concubine and made her go out to them, threw her out the door. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, maybe four in the morning, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, apparently uh, just went and got himself a good night of sleep. And when he opened the doors of the house and went to go on his way, behold... There was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. There have been times where the book of Judges has kind of glossed over certain details. Here, the author's giving us some rather um, painful details. It's a woman clawing for her life, her very life. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. She's either unconscious, maybe dead already. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. Barry Webb, one Bible commentator, says, the expression is chilling in what it implies by its sheer ordinariness. After thrusting out his concubine and seeing that he himself is no longer personally threatened, the Levite has retired to bed. In the morning, he rises without any apparent remorse for what he has done or concern for his concubine. In fact, he appears to give her no thought at all until he is preparing to leave and finds her on the doorstep and tells her with almost unbelievable callousness to get up because he is ready to go. Verse 29, he travels home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. 
This is the kind of stuff that like shows today on HBO or whatever would want to, to do to shock you. This is thousands of years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Shocking today, shocking back then. And he sent her, he mailed her body parts throughout all of the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened, has never happened or been seen since the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. That's the end of the first act. That's the the crime, the individual crime. Act 2, starting in chapter 20. So all the people of Israel came out, all of them, from Dan to Beersheba, the land of Gilead, the congregation assembled as one man. You see that phrase, one man? It's going to happen about three times throughout the course of this passage. It's very interesting to me that Israel, throughout the book, could never unite over anything, but now that when it comes to this, now they're going to unite. They couldn't unite against the oppressors. They couldn't unite in worship of God, but they are going to unite. How do we get back at Benjamin? The chiefs of all the people, all the tribes, they presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that Israel was gathering together and gone up to Mizpah. The people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. He's telling the story. They meant to kill me. Yeah, I kind of left out some details there. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. Question. Anybody here ever been tempted to recount or retell a story and leave out a few details to make yourself not seem quite so bad? Pretty selective recounting there. So I I took hold of my concubine. I cut her in pieces. You know, seemed like the reasonable thing to do. Sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel. What should we do? So all the people arose, again, as one man saying, none of us will go back to his tent or to his house. This is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We'll take 10 men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, hundred of a thousand, a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that they may come repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So the men of Israel gathered against the city, Israel against Israel as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? You need to give up those men. You need to send those worthless fellows out that they may be put to death and we can purge this evil from Israel. So they are seeking justice. We want those men that committed this unspeakable crime and this unspeakable act. Send them out. What, what's the tribe of Benjamin going to do? They don't listen. They do not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. They're either engaging in pride and stubbornness in general, or maybe a particular type of tribal and racial pride and stubbornness to say, we're going to stick with our people, even though there's been clear sin and clear wickedness, we're going to stick together and just kind of turn a blind eye because it's tribalism. Verse 14, then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. One tribe against 11. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men. Not a a huge group. 
but they did have these 700 chosen men who it says they were left-handed and they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. It's a very, I mean, first of all, that's great aim. Second of all, if you're left-handed, that's a tactical advantage because if you're right-handed, almost said normal, if you're right-handed, uh, you hold your sword in your right hand, your, your shield in your left hand, and a sling, you know, the rock would come this way. But if you're left-handed, it's coming from the other way and puts you in a more vulnerable position. So the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, got 400,000 men. So 400,000 versus 26,000. The people of Israel rose up, they went to Bethel, and they inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go first. That's the tribe. So they're praying, that's good, right? So the people of Israel rose early in the morning. They encamped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. The men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. So the Israelites have this major superior force. They prayed, they sought God, they go up, and then they just got their, their tails whipped. Wow. Verse 22, the people, the men of Israel, they, they took uh, 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 courage and they again formed the battle line in the same place where it had been formed on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and they wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, well, should we go up again to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So the people of Israel came near the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out of them, out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 Israelite soldiers. Two days, two times of praying, two answers from God, two defeats. What is going on? So then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up to Bethel and they wept and they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. Well, side note, that shows us that this story actually takes place a little bit earlier, probably pretty early in the period of the judges. But the author of Judges put it at the end it's kind of a dramatic story to show us this is what happens when there's no king. This is Aaron, Moses' brother, and his grandson is still alive at this time, so probably somewhat early in the period of Judges. So they prayed again. Should we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or should we just, should we see? Should we stop? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Just out of curiosity, you don't have to raise your hand, but just anybody ever had this experience where you felt like I prayed, I sought God, I sought wise counsel, I thought I was making the right decision. Why is everything turning out so terrible for me? Anybody ever had that experience? I think I have. Maybe, maybe they didn't really hear from God the first couple times, they just assumed the answer. Seems like the author is telling us that God told them. Maybe God was bringing judgment not only on Benjamin, but on all of Israel for their unfaithfulness to him. Maybe, maybe it's... Maybe it's just one of those mysterious things that we don't always get a, a view into God's ways. But only this third time does God actually promise victory. Go up, I'll give you the victory. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And this is kind of a long uh, recounting of the story. They, they, they set an ambush. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of summarize this section because it reads long and kind of twice. So this time they go out to the same place. 
And the people of Benjamin, they come out, and the people of Benjamin, boy, they get overconfident. You can see that in verse 32. Ah, oh, they're routed before us, just like at the first. So they, they, the people of Israel say, well, let's draw back. Let's pull back. The people of Benjamin start, start chasing them, and another group of Israelites comes in from behind and goes in and rushes in against the city of Gibeah, and destroys it. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 36. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they'd set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out, struck all the city with the edge of the sword. And the appointed signal that they had, there's two groups of Israel, they split up. The appointed signal is when there's a huge cloud of smoke going out of the city, that's when you need to turn back and push them back. Now, Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. And they said, surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, their whole city went up in smoke to heaven. So finally on this third attempt, Israel has won. And not only have they won this battle, but they went in and they've actually destroyed the entire city of Gibeah. Verse 41, then the men of Israel turned, oh, but they're not done yet. The men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. So they turned their backs. They started to run, but the battle overtook them. Those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. They surrounded the Benjaminites. They pursued them and trod them down. They chased them to Nora and Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men fell there. Then they turned and fled another way to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. Then they were chased to Gidom and 2,000 men more were cut down. So all that day, 25,000 men from Benjamin were struck down and killed, all of them men of valor. And how many men are left? How many men are left? 600. That's all that's left of the men of the tribe of Benjamin. So they turned and fled to the wilderness of the Rock of Ramon and remained at the Rock of Ramon four months. Four months. The men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin. Get this. Struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, beasts, all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So Israel, the other tribes say, no, 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 we're not just going to have justice for the crime that was committed. We're going to wipe them out. We're going to wipe them out. Now we start the third act, chapter 21. The men of Israel, (laughs) they had sworn an oath at Mizpah, none of us will give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So it's not just that we're going to wipe them out. We're not even going to let them marry our daughters. We're not going to let them repopulate. They're going to be cursed and cut off. Vengeance had crept in. You see that? Then all the people came to Bethel. This is interesting. The irony here. They, 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 they lifted up their voices to God. They wept bitterly. They said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? God, why has this happened? Why is Benjamin wiped out? I don't know, because you wiped them out? (sighs) The next day, the people rose early, built an altar, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people of Israel had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come to the Lord at Mizpah. They, They were making oaths left and right. Here was this oath. Anybody that doesn't come up to help us, we're going to put them to death too. We're not just going to wipe out the Benjaminites. Anybody that doesn't help us, we're going to kill them also. So the people of Benjamin had compassion for Benjamin, their brother. That's, I guess, good. And they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we'll not give them any of our daughters for wives. What are we going to do? Somebody has a bright idea. I know. Wasn't there one of those tribes that didn't come to help us? 
No one came from the camp of Jabesh Gilead. That's like a little clan. It's not a whole tribe. It's a little clan. Those Jabesh Gileadites, they never showed up to help us. So let's go, let's get 12,000 men. Let's go strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little children. Let's kill them all. And every male and every we, uh, woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. But we're going to keep, we're going to keep those young virgins. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them, brought them, it's a loaded verb, to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin and they proclaimed peace to them. Hey, hey, truce, time out. We brought you some wives. Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. Remember? How many men were left? 600? And this is only 400. Sorry, we weren't able to find more young, innocent women to annihilate their families, forcibly carry them off, and then give them to you in marriage. But we're going to keep, we're going to keep thinking about another solution. Solution. Verse 15, the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord made a breach for the tribes of Israel. So the elders said, what, what are we going to do? There's, the women of Benjamin are destroyed. They said, well, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. We can't give them wives from our daughters. Remember that vow we made? For the people had sworn so. They said, oh, I've got an idea. Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord. Feast of the Lord. A worshipful feast at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the highway, south of Labona. They commanded the people of Benjamin, say, hey, Benjamin, I got an idea. Here's what you're going to do. Go lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. And if the daughters, the young women of Shiloh, come out to dance in the dances, you know, the, the worship dances for their feast to the Lord, just snatch each man a wife from the daughters of Shiloh and then go back to the land of Benjamin. And if their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, well, we'll say, hey, hey, just be gracious. We didn't, we didn't take for each man uh, his wife in battle, but you didn't give them to us, so you didn't break the oath that we made or else now you'd be guilty. So the people of Benjamin did so. And took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived to them. Is, this is just the height of tragic irony. That a, this whole war started because of a violent act of a sexual nature. And the solution at the end of the whole story is let's commit an act of violence of a sexual nature to kidnap these young women and just forcibly give them into marriage. The people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And thus ends this time period of the judges. You can continue reading on in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. God raises up, actually 1st King Saul, the first king of Israel, who, by the way, was from the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't go so well. God puts in David, a man from the tribe of Judah. God's going to bring kings, but the story's going to continue on. The other kings are going to rebel against God. There's going to be sin, devastation. Eventually, God is going to remove the people from the land. After 
literally century upon century of patience with them. He's going to remove them from the land. And the story of the Old Testament, as bleak as this is, ends still bleak. Now I want to ask a few questions here because I want to, I want to show you the redemption that's here because this is a dark story, amen? As a matter of fact, you have done really well. Everybody just, okay, take a big breath. <laughs> Whew, I can feel the weight. Can you guys feel the weight in the room? I want to share with you three things from this story and from the story of judges in general. And the first one is just simply sin escalates. Sin escalates. We saw how an unfaithful concubine led to traveling, which led to this sexual assault, which led to a callous response, which led to a civil war, which led to annihilation, which led to extermination of other people groups, which led to kidnapping and forcible, basically forcible marriage. Now, in our lives, we, we probably haven't seen anything quite this dramatic, but have you in your, your family, your extended family, your workplace, your, your social circle, you ever seen the way that sin just kind of ratchets up and escalates? It's kind of silly. I mean, they make, they make whole movies about this kind of a thing. You know, a movie like, uh, think of movies like The Hangover or something. One bad decision leads to another, and then you've got to cover this one up, then you've got to cover this one. And, and we laugh about it, but if you've ever been involved in it, uh, you know that it's painful, and it hurts, and it's tragic. The people of Israel just kept giving place to kind of one more sin, and one more sin, and one more sin, and before they know it, it's like the whole nation is engulfed in just chaos. Let me ask you, for your life personally, for you individually, is there sin that you have made peace with? There's kind of sin going on. You're like, you know what? It's, it just is what it is. It's, it's no big deal. It's under control. I don't, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna make some long prolonged argument. I don't wanna quote Puritans or anything. I just simply wanna ask you, is that, is that really the nature of how we see the world working? Does sin just kind of stay put? Or is sin more like, uh, you know, like that kind of uh, nosy neighbor? If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Experiences sometimes even, you know, just <laughs> like the life of my kids, right? One kid does one thing against another, and then it ratchets up and it ratchets up. And before you know, there's like, you know, torches and pitchforks involved or something, right? Friends, I would just urge you to take seriously the nature of sin, to not placate it, to not make peace, to not say, well, it's just a little bit of sin. Like whatever God is stirring in your heart, wherever he's bringing conviction, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you to deal with it seriously because it is. Sin is like a ravenous lion, wants to eat you alive. We see that vividly on display in this story. Specifically, number two, I, I want to specifically point out that sexual assault is inhuman. I wrestled back and forth whether to use the word subhuman or inhuman. And, and let, me, let me just say this. Many of the stories in the book of Judges deal with sexual topics and sexual themes. Again, tried to give warnings for parents or families, send those things out in emails. But, but the reality is that because of the escalation of sin, one of the areas where you see it really um, come to fruition is in the area of sexuality and sexual sin. And wherever, wherever there's more quote-unquote freedom or licentiousness or options or choices or sexual liberation, 
One of the incredible things is that we also see almost always hand-in-hand sexual assault. Because our appetite really isn't truly for sex. As humans, our appetite is for intimacy, to be loved, to be known. But when we have, you know, even, even in our culture, it's just so interesting to me to watch kind of in our own culture, these two um, attitudes. One is this attitude of pretty much kind of an anything goes when it comes to sex and sexuality, instead of what God says, what we say is okay. And yet the moral outrage over things like, you know, so-called rape culture or sexualized violence on TV, which is at an all-time high, it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Even the very moral language that gets used It's okay to do all of these things, but then you cannot do this one thing because it violates freedom or free will, which I absolutely agree with. Actually, even in prison, if you are someone who has committed sexual assault, particularly against a a, a young person, you are the lowest of the low in prison. There is a pecking order and, and, and it's just so interesting to see the way that that one thing, you could, you could have committed murders, you could have robbed banks, you could do anything, but if you have sexually assaulted someone, you are a scumbag. Friends, I would like to challenge us, Sound City Bible Church, to be people, to be a church, to be disciples that have, uh, uh, I have to say this carefully, I want to have a really strong attitude against sexual assault, a really strong sense of protectiveness for our children, our young people, and for our women who are more commonly the victims of sexual violence. I want to challenge us to be the type of church that practices grace and healing and redemption for those who have been sexually assaulted, women and men as well. Some of you may not realize how shameful it is for men who have been sexually assaulted to ever say something in our culture. Again, that's not acceptable. And that we would seek God's grace and forgiveness if we have ever been a perpetrator, no matter how serious or or maybe seemingly innocent. The reason why I say it's inhuman is because God gave sexuality to a husband and wife, to a man and a woman. It is the most intimate and vulnerable that two human beings can be together. And when someone takes that place of intimacy and vulnerability and then turns it into a, a weapon to be used, that can be one of the most damaging things in all of human existence. I, um, it's even interesting to me to think about the way that the language that sometimes we use, right? Um, someone, someone gets on the prowl, a guy, oh, did you take that girl home? Did you get her home from the bar? Oh, did you guys, did you guys hook up? What, what do people say sometimes? Oh, you dog. Oh, you animal. Right? You know, songs like the great theologian Adam Levine from Maroon 5, Animals. Uh, you know. Bruno, I know it sounds silly, Bruno Mars has a song, Making Love Like Gorillas. Like that's the, like that's the peak and pinnacle of our... But do you, do you hear that language? Do you hear how it's dehumanizing? God created us in his image and likeness. We have particular glory and dignity and value and worth, and yet we trade that in for a debased view of sexuality that's actually less than what God has for us and nowhere is that more true than when it comes to sexual assault. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that could be said, but I pray that Jesus would make Sound City a place that could be safe and protective and loving and healing and redemptive. And let's say one other thing. Some of you want to get involved with organizations or ministries that that serve sexual abuse victims or or, um, help maybe women who are trapped in prostitution or the sex industry. Yes and amen to all of that. Uh, 
God bless you to do that. If you, particularly in your community groups, want to do that. One thing that God has given to our church is the ministry of foster care. And uh, the the tragic reality is that many women uh, who have either been sexually abused or are working in the sex industry spend time in foster care. And so my prayer is that God would raise up dozens upon dozens of families to bring these vulnerable young ones in to offer them a loving, safe, protective environment, a healing environment. I actually just had a conversation with a non-Christian a week ago and, and they opened up to me and said that they spent time in foster care as a kid and they were horrifically abused and it has had traumatic life. It was, it was just a conversation kind of came up out of nowhere. Not everyone here is going to do foster care, but if, if, if you don't already know, many of us in the church are, and many others who aren't directly involved are involved in a supportive sort of a role. And that's something I think that God has uniquely given to Sound City Bible Church. And I just urge you to consider and to pray ways that you can be involved. And then here's the third thing I want to say, and I'll close on this. Third thing is, God's ways are God's ways. And when I think about the story of Judges, I think about, at least for me, what comes to mind is, God, why did you let things get so dark? Why did you not send a king? Why did you not send a redeemer right then and there? Why did you send this series of judges? Why did you allow things to get so messy? Why did you allow things to get so broken? And... Friends, I don't have a good answer for that question. I'm just being honest with you about the challenge that rises up in my heart. But I do know this. I do know this because, thank God, we have more than just the book of Judges in our Bible. Amen? We have things like the New Testament. We have things like in Galatians chapter 4, where the apostle Paul writes, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Thank God that the chaos at the end of the book of Judges is not the end of the story. Think about this, friends. Think about this. God made a promise to the people of Israel that through Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, if I was God, I would be tempted, after reading the last three chapters that I just read, I would be tempted to give up on this people group. What about you? I'm going to move on. I'm going to use somebody else, maybe like the Native Americans or the Japanese. I'm going to try somebody else because these Israelites have completely blown it and I'm done with them. But thank God that the whole point is not about how faithful we are. It's about how faithful he is. And that he still, through this people group, this jacked up, messed up people group, still sent his son Jesus at the right time, when the fullness of time had come. Why did God take so long? I don't know, but I do know that he did it. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. He sent Jesus to rise again. He sent Jesus to declare that all of our sins... Big, small, in between, when placed under the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, can be forgiven. Is that encouraging to anyone today? When the fullness of time had come. This is a silly analogy, but I've been, I've, you've heard me gripe now a few times about my kitchen remodel thing that's going on. And the saga drags on. It's, it's sheetrock sanding time, which if you've never had the particular joy of sanding down sheetrock dust, I feel like I have sheetrock dust in my soul, okay? And, and, and I'm in this place, I'm literally, I've got a mask on and glasses and a, a headlamp because I want the lights off and I'm sanding. And this little three-year-old guy we got staying with us now walks in and goes, Dad, why is it so messy? And I'm like, I don't 
know, but I, ha- I know that I, I have to go through this mess because it's going to turn out glorious on the other side. That's a silly illustration, but this three-year-old's understanding of the kitchen to my understanding of the kitchen, I would say is infinitely better than my understanding of running the universe to God's understanding of running the universe. Okay? You've, you track him with me? Like, he doesn't really get it. This seems like a mess. It seems like you're making a lot of extra work for yourself. Dad, why are you doing this? Meanwhile, I go to God. God, you're making a big mess. Why are you not doing things right now? Have you ever felt that way in your own life? God, what's taking so long? Where's the redemption you promised? Where's the healing you promised? Where's the fixing that you promised? Where's, where's all that by his stripes who are healed stuff? Where's all that redemption? Where's all that forgiveness? Where's all that reconciliation you promised? God, I'm still waiting. Anybody ever felt that way? God's ways are God's ways. I can't, we can't dictate to God how and when he will work his redemption, but we do know this. We have a savior named Jesus who has brought us ultimate redemption. And whether in this life or the next, we will see the fullness of God's healing and redeeming work. Amen? I want to go back to read from Psalm 130. Our scripture reading. Think about this. This is written after the time period of Judges, but things in Israel haven't really gotten that much better. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about that. If God really balanced the scales of your good deeds versus your bad deeds, who here could stand? The answer is none of us. But with you, there is, what's the word, Sound City? Forgiveness. That you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. The timing's not always what I want it to be, but my, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. For us as Christians, in his word made flesh, Jesus, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. You ever had to stay up overnight? Maybe for a job or maybe like for a, like a high school overnighter and you're like, when will the morning come? It's like that. I, I wait for the Lord. When will your redemption come? Oh, Israel. Oh, Gentiles grafted into Israel. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is, said out loud with me, Sound City, plentiful redemption. Not just well, a little bit of redemption, plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What this tells me is that no matter how broken, messed up, or jacked up of a situation we have created, God's more faithful, more powerful, more loving, and more gracious. Amen? What, a, what, a, what an important and needed word for us today. So here's what we're going to do. I know I've gone long. I just preached three chapters of scripture. Cut me a little slack. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond today. We're going to respond a little bit differently than we normally do. I'm going to go invite the musicians to come. I'll invite the younger students to class to come and, and the younger students class to come and join us for this time of response. We are going to collect an offering. We're going to give of our tithes and offerings. And so I'm going to ask the financial stewards to do so. Let's do so kind of quietly. And and I'm just asking you to stay tracking with me here, okay? They're also going to hand out the elements for communion. Let me explain what we're going to do here going for the next few minutes. Earlier this week, 
studying for this passage, like, man, this is messed up. And then I, I put up a post on Facebook on like Tuesday morning and I said, if anybody's got any prayer requests, comment them, send them my way. I'm going to spend some time on Tuesday afternoon praying for people. And I got 50 comments, private messages, text messages. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of brokenness, friends. Even in, I know that the, the kitchen thing, but just even in my family, my wife and I, we had some, some arguments and some fights and things. It's just brokenness. Just, ugh, it's messy. It's hard. It's challenging. Stuff's not all neat and tidy and clean with a bow on it. I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know the situation. I don't know what you've walked through. But there's brokenness here in this room, is there not? So rather than reading all the discussion questions and going through all that, I'm going to put up a slide here of what we're going to do as, as, as we kind of enter into our prayer response time. We are going to celebrate the Lord's table, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. But I want to call us, I want to, I want to invite us as a church into a time intentionally of prayer. And so we're going to open up a few different options, okay? Uh, I, we haven't really done this much since we've been in this new space. It's a little bit, I don't know, exposed feeling. I know it's kind of a, all eyes are on the front. But myself, Pastor Doug will be down front. Is Pastor Shane, did he come back in here? You're there. Are you going to go upstairs? Okay, so Pastor Shane's going to go upstairs if you don't want to come down front. If you want to go in the back. I know it's nerve-wracking to feel like, I don't want to walk up in front of everybody, but if one of us as elders, if we can pray for you, uh, please do that. If you don't want to do that, but you're looking around like I came with my spouse or I see somebody from my community group and you want to like literally get up out of your chair. We're going to get kind of charismatic here for a minute. You can get up out of your chair. You can relocate. You can huddle together in groups of two, three, four, and just pray for each other. And again, not trying to force anybody to feel uncomfortable or whatever, but if you want to just simply sit by yourself as an individual longer than we normally do. Just pray and and celebrate the Lord's table and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I urge you to do that. However God is asking you to respond, let's take time now in service, in prayer, bringing our brokenness to God. Whatever's going on, maybe it's you personally, maybe it's someone in your family, someone you know, someone in your community group. Sound City, can can I ask you, can we be a little bit brave? Can we break, uh, you know, from the format just a little bit? Is that okay? I see like three extroverts nodded and they really are happy about this, right? I, again, you don't have to come down front. You don't have to go up in the back. Pastor Shane will be up in the back corner there. Gather with your community group. You can sit by yourself. That's totally okay. But if the spirit is prompting you to respond in some way, let me just urge you to respond. I'm gonna pray. The musicians are gonna begin leading us in song and I'm gonna urge you to come down front or to gather together with others and to pray. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that our brokenness and our messiness, God, if it didn't, if the Israelites' brokenness didn't run you off, if you were still faithful to them, then then God, we want to have faith and trust that our brokenness and messiness won't run you off. For those who belong to you, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's nothing that can separate us from your love. So God, right now, whatever's going on in the hearts and the lives of people here, if there's sin that needs to be repented of, if there's just pain or wounds that have been carried around, if there's just a broken situation that needs to be addressed, God, I ask and pray that we could come to you now in prayer, in faith believing that you love us. Even as we celebrate the the bread and the cup together today, we would remember that you love us and you're faithful to us, that Jesus, your redemption is big enough. 
May we respond to you now in faith and even, God, with a sense of joy, even in our sorrow and brokenness, knowing that you love us. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.